Hi, I'm Deb Hunter, and welcome to All Things Tudor, the podcast that blows the dust off the history books and brings the world of the Tudors roaring back to life. Each episode will bring you awesome guests and topics, stories, and revelations. The power, the sex, the scandals, the romance, and the ruthlessness. So join me, and together we'll pull back the curtain and discover the real lives of the Tudors. Hi, and welcome to All Things Tudor. Today, our very special guest is Dr. Estelle Peronk. Estelle, how are you today? Hi, Deb, and thank you for having me. I'm, uh, I'm very good. Thank you very much. Well, you are an absolute powerhouse of Tudor history knowledge, and it would take me an hour at least to read your CV. Tell our audience a little about your background. Well, first of all, thank you so much. It's very nice. It's very nice to hear. Um, so, so I'm from France, um, so I'm French, and I grew up there. And um, basically, I was introduced to history and royal history very young, at a very young age. My mother, funny enough, um, loved the French Revolution more than anything, I think. And I do too, funny enough as well. <laughs> Um, but my mother uh, also loved the monarchy. She just loved the history of our country. The uh, So obviously we had to talk about French kings and French queens. And what she used to do was to take me, obviously with my dad, to they both took me to um, the castles of La Loire, les châteaux de La Loire, and so Chenonceau, you know, um, Amboise, bien sûr, um, you know, uh, Blois, Fontainebleau, and 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 all these castles that are in the Parisian region. Obviously, there was also uh, Versailles, but obviously that was a bit later into my interest. And from a very young age, my mom made me love, absolutely love history. But my dad was a very practical man, and he didn't think that history uh, should be the way forward. So when I started university, I told my dad I wanted to do a history degree. He refused. He wanted me to do economics like him, and I refused. And basically what happened is that we agreed that I would take English studies because he thought that um, obviously English being such an important language, at least I would have a good start in life with whatever I wanted to do. But when you do English studies, you do English linguistics, English translation, English literature, American literature as well, by the way. And you do uh, English history and American history. So, like, it was absolutely amazing once I started working on Elizabeth I. I completely fell in love uh, with her, with the Tudors, but her more specifically. And it really brought together my two passions between French history and English history. And I could really see from a very, like, from the start of studying that actually... You can't really learn about one, you know, one country history without looking at their neighbors because they work with one another. They do stuff with one another. So that's how it all started for me. I become so passionate. And then I decided to, to do a master's degree. And I in France, you do a master's degree, it's two years. So I did my first year at Liverpool, University of Liverpool, and and then I did, took a few months at the University of Bristol, and then I came back to France in Aix-en-Provence, and 
I knew I had to to go back to England. So then I got a job as um, a language French language instructor at Queen Mary University. And in 2010, with one luggage, <laughs> I moved to the UK, to London. And the rest is history. Basically, I, I managed to get into a PhD program at University College London. And I started working on Elizabeth and the French. And from that moment on, I, um, I became completely... I mean, obsessed almost. Yes, I think it's an obsession. It's a passion. It's a dedication to what I do and to um, yeah, and to the work I, I produce. So you mentioned Elizabeth and the French. Is that when you decided to make history your career? Yes, I think that once I... So my PhD um, thesis was Elizabeth and the French. So Elizabeth first of England through Valois eyes and it was from 1568 to 1588 and for my first academic book I added a total new chapter I reworked all chapters and uh, it was from 1558 to 1588 and that was something very um, where I knew that it had not been done before and I knew that it would really fill a huge gap in the historiography. I mean, I'm not saying that people have not worked on Elizabeth and the French. We have Glenn Richardson, we have Susan Doran, we have other people who have like interests in the French. We have Michael Casey, who looks at Catholic um, communities and on the continent and in England. So obviously there, there are different links. But there was very little in terms of real depth, you know, depth studies on Elizabeth and the the ones who are uh, lesser known, so like Charles IX and Henry III. So my thesis was really about that because it started in 1568 and it ended in 1588. So obviously it's during their reigns. And for my book, I expanded to the beginning of Elizabeth's reign because I thought it was really interesting to discuss her relationship was with Henry II of France and then with Francis II, who was married to Mary Stuart. And where we have the explanation as well of all the animosity between the two cousins and how it started, why it started, and how Francis II also played a role. But lucky enough for him, I think he died quite <laughs> quite early, so he, he didn't get the wrath of Elizabeth. But but all <laughs> of this is like you know it builds on like the, the story of of um, of Elizabeth the character. And it's where I knew that I would make a career. But also what, what, what really inspired me is just I'm in love with powerful women. I'm in love with queens. And the, way, the ways in which they wielded political power, it's a massive patriarchal society. It's very difficult to actually wield uh, political power uh, efficiently and obviously that's why then I moved on to you know in my research to other queens so I've worked on uh, the French queens you know I've worked on Charles IX's widow on Henry III's widow um, I've, I've, I've worked on all of them because I was so interested in their times as queens concert but also at the times at when they're no longer queens well for Louise she's queen dowager but for Elizabeth of Austria, she left and went back to Austria. And I think it's very interesting um, that we kind of like overlook them. I've always also been in love with another French queen, well, half French, half Italian, uh, Catherine de Medici. 
And I didn't realize why I loved her so much until I really studied her and her sons. That when I looked at their letters, when I looked at their personal letters to each other, when I looked at her, at most of her letters and how how intelligent she was. And she reminded me of Elizabeth in so many ways. And that's obviously why, you know, then I decided to write my forthcoming book, Blood, Fire and Gold, because Elizabeth and Catherine share so much. They have so much in common. I mean, one has declared a bastard at three years old. The other one is an orphan at 19 days old. So obviously, they were never meant to be queens. And yet, (laughs) they were the most powerful queens in the second half of the 16th century. And that in itself is absolutely remarkable. It truly is. And you hit on something very important. That part of the Tudor era, really in Western Europe, was the age of queens, wasn't it? It totally was. It's it's so interesting. Like when you look at the 16th century um, in Europe, you have obviously Isabel of Castile, who's massively powerful. She's the mother of Catherine of Aragon that we all love. I mean, how can you not love her? I, I think that's what I love as well about uh, Henry VIII, um, Six Wives, is that, it, you know, we all have, I mean, people can have their favourites, but I think sometimes it's very hard to have just one <laughs> because they're, they're all very remarkable in their own ways. You have Catherine of Aragon, who's like a powerhouse. She really is. She's royal blood. You don't mess with Catherine of Aragon. Well, he, obviously he did, but and I think that's why so many people are like heartbroken about it because uh, the story is quite it's quite tragic for a royal princess. And you and it's very rare that a royal princess is treated that way. But she's absolutely, she's intelligent. She's not, you know, she's not, she's far from being stupid. And also we can really assume that those two, Henry VIII and Catherine, shared a great love. Then obviously you have Anne Boleyn and Anne Boleyn is the one that is, you know, that creates lots of emotions because People are always a bit uncomfortable with a woman who knows what she wants. And Anne Boleyn is definitely the definition of a woman who knows what she wants. And she's not afraid of saying it. And I love that. She's a real, you know, she's her own free woman and uh, impossible to tame. Obviously, she had her, um, her, you know, childhood and education in France. And I think... There's a lot to say about this because I think that she would not have been the woman she became without, you know, that French education and this French relations that she developed while in France. You have Jane Seymour, obviously, like, we know little about her because we lost some of the letters, the state papers and everything, but she's, I think she's, she's more than we think she was. She, I think that we we tend to overlook her just as, you know, the woman who finally had a son for Henry, but actually there's more to her and I think she has more agency and influence that, than, you know, just her two brothers, like, manipulating her and everything. I, I think it, 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 there's more than that. Then we obviously have Anne of Cleves, who is like the rock star of the six wives, in my opinion. <laughs> like she's she's absolutely brilliant. Uh, she, not only she managed to get what you know to to divorce the pig, who the pig is Henry VIII, but also she managed to get 
also what she wanted and um to remain in good terms with everyone at court to be completely like respected i mean she's she's she, yeah she's a true powerhouse like Catherine of Aragon um and then obviously you have Catherine Howard that people have seem to love judging but there's a brilliant book on on her. Well, it's not just her, but it's a Ritha Warnocky, a Wicked Women in Tudor England, I think is the title. And it's a brilliant book because, and I, I, I really, with Ritha in, in the argument, she really sold it to me. Um, she looked at the letters of uh, Catherine Howard, um, you know, when she's unfaithful to Henry VIII. And she believes that it's more complex than that, that actually from the letters, we can't be 100% sure that she was. And I think that's brilliant because she made claims when she looked at the language and she had a very strong argument about the language, the use of the language, the the way the letters are structured. And I was completely sold. So uh, please do read that book, guys, because I think you will absolutely love it. Absolutely love it. And I think Catherine Howard is more than just this teenager who a stupid teenager she's more than that um also i think she she's the, probably the most unlucky one because I, I don't think she wanted to marry henry VIII at all can you imagine you're super young you're a teenager and you're married to this man who looks like nothing very attractive and nothing very glorious so yeah, it's, it's a bit of, of a big disappointment i think for her and obviously then we have catherine parr catherine parr who is probably the smartest with Anne of Cleves of them all. Very intelligent, but very also like um, who knows how how to get what she wants as well. And when you see that, when you, when you talk about these women, you know, like in as we said, like women were really ruling the 16th century. You have these six wives who are all so formidable that we still still love them today. It's crazy. We still have an interest. We have the sixth musical, which is absolutely amazing. We have this, almost this eternal love <laughs> and internal interest for them. Obviously, in France, you have also very strong women. You have Louise of Savoy. You have, you know, the mother of Francis I. You have his sister, Marguerite of Angoulême, who's going to become Queen of Navarre. Brilliant, brilliant women, um, completely independent, completely you know, um, also like their own free women. Um, And you have also, obviously, Catherine de Medici. Catherine de Medici being her own, like, um, person, but in a way that uh, she's extremely unique in the way she did things. And actually, I said she's extremely unique. I think she's not that unique because I think Elizabeth I and, and Catherine really had similar personalities. So that's so fascinating. And, but you also, have, you know, we talk about all the queens and everything. You have Mary the First, obviously, that has been completely, you know, um, vilified because she was a woman. Because to be honest, like, that's the thing when I teach about Mary the First that annoys me the most. She's called Bloody Mary. But when you look at her French counterpart at the same time when she was ruling, so it's Henry the Second, he killed more, more Protestants in the five years of her reign than she did in England. I, I'm not saying it's a good thing to kill people, okay? It's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that it was something that Catholic monarchs did. It was something that was expected of them. And yet this woman, he's called Bloody Mary, we remember only that. Well, there are obviously some works like Linda Porter, obviously Valerie Chute, Alexander Sampson, you know, Anna Whitelock. 
Sarah Duncan, just to name a few, who have obviously like debunked all these myths. But I think even today, we can't kind of like help ourselves and call her Bloody Mary. But we never call Henry II Bloody Henry. And he should be called that way, uh, to be fair. So that's, that, so we have all these powerful women. But we tend to forget also like the women who are also extremely powerful as mistresses. And that's especially true with obviously Henry VIII and is, you know, Anne Boleyn was a mistress, you know, Jean Seymour was probably a mistress as well. Like, you know, like it was just, but it's also very true in France with uh, Catherine de Medici's personal rival, Diane de Poitiers, who's also a big character in my book, Blood, Fire and Gold, because she created lots of pain. Maybe not on purpose, like in a way that she just fell in love with this young prince and this young prince fell in love with her. But they were very like, humiliating moments for Catherine de Medici and um, she never she never forgot them and uh, when Henry II died uh, Catherine de Medici is, is showing uh, new sides of her personalities and I think people are like oh my god how can you move from being humble and obedient to you know cunning and 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 and, and deceptive and 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 manipulative and and I would say these people were always the same. Like, they were that. They were just hiding their true colors. It's what, you know, it's what Elizabeth did as well. As well, you know, when she became to power, like, she really showed her true colors and how she was going to rule. But truth is, she was very much in charge of her reign. Like, um, I know that some scholars argue that because she had privy councillors, that maybe Cecil was the sort of, of a king for her, king concert. I think that's absolutely ridiculous to think like that because then you need to say that for any male monarchs because there's no one male monarch who was ruling on their own and had no advisor not even Charles the first right like in the seventh century he was still even when he you know he didn't um listen to his parliament and everything but, uh, and it dismissed it but he was still having his privy council the only one who really went you know a uh, absolute monarch with no council is Louis the 14th in France in uh, the late 17th century. So so that's really important to, to point out because I think that we need to stop thinking that because you're a privy councillor and you're women, it means that you have somehow a, a concert, a king concert. No, you, you're just doing what any any other male monarch is doing in Europe. You're listening to your council, you're still running on your own. And Elizabeth showed that. She showed like at 25 when she became queen, she had showed all her life obedience, humility, all of this, you know. And then she's saying, well, actually, we, I want to do things this way now. <laughs> and they're all a bit surprised. And this is the same with Catherine. When Catherine gets into power and she gets um, into power almost around the same time as Elizabeth, that's why the comparison is so striking between the two queens. And for Catherine, it's more like um, it, it takes a bit longer but once she's in power, about 1560, she's uh, 1561 because it's uh, the end of 1560, she's really also showing, well, she's still very diplomatic, but at the same time, sometimes she lost her temper. Both queens actually lost their temper. Um, she wanted it, She wanted some things her way, and she managed to have them there, her way. So I think that's brilliant that we have so many strong, powerful determined, resilient women in the 16th century that we can, that we can learn from. If you're a fan of Tudor history, come join us at All Things Tudor 
a Facebook group dedicated to, well, all things Tudor. Members can contribute a wide array of subject matter about Tudor history. You can also listen to the All Things Tudor podcast. There's a book club and a weekly clubhouse live audio chat, often featuring very special guests. Look for upcoming surprises for the group members in 2022. Become a member of one of the largest groups of Tudor history enthusiasts on the planet. Simply go to the Facebook search bar, type in All Things Tudor, select the option to join the group, and of course answer the membership questions. Join us now at All Things Tudor. Look forward to seeing you. Let's talk about your book. You mentioned that briefly. What inspired you to write about Elizabeth and Catherine? When was the moment you knew you had to write about them? So when I started writing, so I started writing my thesis and I was really just absolutely kind of determined and and, and not looking at anything else but doing my thesis. Having said that, I have a habit of when I go into an archive, I usually not just go for what I'm looking for. I always get other boxes of manuscripts and I take lots of pictures. So that's how I managed to get so much material on all the things. And I said like, oh, I will work on that later on when I have a moment. And it's always what I've managed to do. So I always have like these massive files of manuscripts on my laptop, of pictures of manuscripts on my laptop, um, because that's how I've done things. But the moment where I knew I had something on Elizabeth and Catherine is when I was actually changing my thesis. No, what I mean is changing my thesis, I'm working on my PhD thesis to turn it into my first academic book. And when I realized that obviously I was focusing so much on Charles the Ninth and Henry III, and it was the topic of my book and I wanted to do it, it needed to be done. I realized I was not including lots of Elizabeth and Catherine's letters because that was not the topic. And though there are some letters, it was really brief. And the more I was thinking about it, so once I finished publishing the, my first book, so it was in 2018, when I sent, I sent it to, my, to the press, Park of Macmillan, I reflected on my notes and I saw, oh my God, there is definitely something here about Elizabeth and Catherine. And then I realized that all the books that, you know, put two women together when it comes to Elizabeth, um, you know, come to Elizabeth and Mary the first, so, um, her, you know, the sisters, and all Eliz- and obviously the, the biggest topic is Elizabeth and Mary, Queen of Scots. And I realized, my God, no one has n- ever said anything on Elizabeth and Catherine Minici, but the exchange dozens of letters, you know, within 30 years. And not only that, they used the ambassadors as mouthpieces. So I'm like, we have, there is a massive story. And also their relationship is not, is so complex. It doesn't start well, then we have a, a moment of, of, of peace and we have, it, it, where we have lots of respect that is you know, building on the, uh, that you can see in their letters and uh, and what they're going to instruct the ambassadors. And then we have a massive fallout. And I was, oh my God, there's something to write here. (laughs) This could be a brilliant book. So I wrote a book proposal that was absolutely dreadful. (laughs) 
<laughs> I sent it to a few yep, agents yep. and I got turned down massively. <laughs> no, it was it was dreadful. Um, it was, <laughs> I think it was called frenemies or something like that. <laughs> it was it was dreadful, and I got turned down by three agents because that's what I did. I, I thought I'm gonna try to get an agent first before getting a publisher. And uh-huh. um, and then I reworked. Each time I got rejected, I reworked on my book proposal. And I was like, okay, I need something. I need a, a catchy title. I need something better. And I was like, okay, what is the story about when you think about these two women? And one that was just like, it is about blood because people are going to lose their lives during their reigns and, and they're going to use some men, you know, to, to, to like... They're gonna use some uh, some of a men's um, their men's uh, lives. So like th- th- there is definitely blood. There's fire in terms of like fire and in terms of war, in terms of like the you know in terms of disputes, in terms of disagreement. There's fire. There's like something burning right between them, and there's definitely you know gold in terms of glory because those two are becoming queens. So gold is represent the crown for 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 them both. So I was like yes. And I, and I loved it. And I was like, okay, blood, fine, gold, that's going to work. And I got my agent, who was absolutely amazing. And um, we worked very hard on the book proposal for a long time because I was working full-time and I was teaching. I had a huge teaching uh, workload. So it was hard for me to get back to her very quickly. So it took a lot of time. But then um, once it was ready and my agent is, you know, she would not send something to publishers if she's not very confident that it's good. And when she sent it and we got like the offer from Ebury Publishing, who was part of Penguin, I mean, we were overjoyed. And then, you know, and then my book is going to be out and I can't believe that it's going to be, you know, out in the world. <laughs> it's, it's amazing. It sounds fantastic. And I, I love the title. I do have to ask you about Elizabeth and Catherine. Was their relationship like a a chess game, a, a chess match? Uh, there are points in the relationships, point in time where it definitely is. So um, you have a massive crisis um, in 1562. That is, it, it all, it is, all comes down from um, the, the loss of Calais that Elizabeth is massively trying to recover because it's a massive, it's a massive blow at the end of Mary the First reign. It's something that is going to really stain her reign. And Elizabeth really doesn't want to start her reign with that blow. So she's really going to try to get it back. And Catherine is, is definitely gonna, not going to let her. <laughs> and and I don't want to spoil the story because it's in my book, but you'll see that Catherine actually played a massive role in the loss of Calais, which is amazing, amazing, guys. Like it's it's a formidable, uh, formidable. And I don't want to minimize her part because I think many historians have. But you need to. In my book, there's a speech that she gave, and that made a difference. And you, it it explains why. So please read it. You'll love it. But it's really like um, it is a chess game um, uh, at times. So you have a chess game at like 1562, 64. I call it the line games. It's I think it's my chapter eight. Um, uh, and yes, it's definitely Chase Games. There, I should have called it that. Actually, my chapter. <laughs> um, but but um, I think I need I need to talk to you more about like titles for chapters. <laughs> but, 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 yeah, so there's that. And then we move on to another bigger chess game, which is when Catherine is basically the one pursuing Elizabeth's hand. She wants an alliance with England. It, for for Catherine, it's absolutely. It makes no sense that Elizabeth doesn't want to marry. And she, she's going to tell her that so many times. She's like, 
I don't understand you because, and that's what I love about these two women. And listen me carefully. Like, it's very important what I'm going to say. I said they were very similar in many ways, but they're also very, very different. Catherine's power stems from motherhood. She is nothing without her sons and her daughters. She sees them as equals because she sees, for her, her daughters means that she can create dynastic alliances. She can, you know, it's what she did with Elizabeth of Valois when she sent her to um, to Spain to be, you know, the wife of Philip II. And it's what she's going to do with, you know, Claude. And it's what she's going to do with Margaret of Valois when she's going to try to, marry, well, when she married her to Henry of Navarre, who um, is going to be, become king of France later. So, but her sons are everything to her. And she has four sons that are going to, Reach adulthood. Obviously, Francis II briefly, but still, he becomes king uh, of France, and obviously, he marries Mary, Queen of Scots, which is a big alliance again. And for her, she's like, there's this throne, you know, next door, <laughs> with this woman on it, single, and I have all these sons. Why is she not picking up one? You know, like they're all beautiful, and she's and she's gonna pursue Elizabeth, and she actually is the one pursuing Elizabeth. The story is a bit more complicated when you come with Francis, who was Duke of Valençon and then Duke of Anjou. Uh, the story gets a bit more complicated because then it's also him pursuing Elizabeth. But I can assure you, Charles IX and Henry III almost wanted nothing to do <laughs> with those negotiations. And that's also why they fell through. To be fair to Charles, I think Charles would have done what... If, if Elizabeth had said yes, he would have obviously accepted it. For Henry... I think it would have been a harder pill to swallow because actually Elizabeth was more interested in Henry because she found him more attractive, uh, which he was. Uh, but uh, but Henry really didn't want to marry a, a, a Protestant um, queen, and he called her called her a public whore, which is obviously awful. But that, that which is so funny because then they became almost friends at the end of his of his life. So it's it's quite funny how people you know change their minds about each other because they realize that it's not about religion, it's about political factions in Europe. And they have to, to realize who are their true allies and who are their true enemies. Do you see what I mean? Like, it's, it's absolutely brilliant. You talked about something that I'm curious about, how they were both orphaned early. How do you believe that affected each of the queens? I think it affected their personalities massively. I mean, I'm okay. I'm not a psychologist, and I don't want like to do to to make too many um, anachronisms. Um, but I think that we would be stupid to completely overlook the trauma that it can create to lose your mother at three years old, even if you say, "Oh, but you don't remember her," or whatever. Like, I think you can't. I think we we tend to forget that there's there's subconscious as well, and that there's some stuff you do remember. They just you can't access them but they're part of you. And I think the same with Catherine. I think obviously Catherine, if she was, you know, 19 days old, like her mother died uh, really quickly and then her father right after. So like, obviously I'm not saying she has memories of her parents. It's not what I'm saying at all. But I'm saying that the, it would explain for both of them their um, survival instinct and how strong um, their survival instinct were. Um, and how when they were in a situation of danger in terms of, because they're, 
both were. I mean, Catherine was struggling. My book is not really about Catherine's, you know, um, uh, childhood, right? So if you want books on that, I'm happy to recommend them, especially like um, thinking of Leonie Frieda, for example, a brilliant paragraph on Catherine. So you have more in-depth. Uh, same with Elizabeth, like, you know, you have Alison Plowden, for example, like very in-depth as well. Where you can look at th- their childhood and how it's going to impact them. However, which which is very clear for me, is that Catherine is brought up by, by relatives um, and different ones. She's uh, at times in danger herself. She's used also as a pawn, as a political pawn, and you can't deny that. Um, she's sent to France at 13 years old. Uh, I mean, and, and she was very happy about it, but to, to a teenager who, um, so a future husband, who completely ignored her. So that was not a very nice I guess, I imagine that's not a very nice feeling. She, I think she fell in love with him quite quickly and he absolutely didn't. And then you have Elizabeth I, obviously, who experienced some trauma herself. Trauma that is not just, you know, being a bastard at three years old uh, and losing her mum, but also, you know, uh, later on in her life. The relationship with Thomas Seymour is uh, highly problematic, to say the least. I know that there are some people who want to recover Thomas Seymour's um, reputation, I think it's going to be quite difficult unless I've missed some sources and I'm happy to be corrected. And that's why we all do what we do is like we write books and we do research to share what we found and we can discuss things. So I'm happy to have my mind, you know, to be to be changed. But right now it's not uh, because of the evidence we have. Uh, he created lots of danger for Elizabeth, and now I think he was a predator and um, not necessarily a good man, if I'm honest with you. And then obviously with uh, in, during her sister's reign, Mary treated Elizabeth, I think, personally quite well, but she was advised not to, and she also feared for her own life, what it meant for her, that she was, you know, I think the two sisters were against one another, and I think that's that created also some some survival instinct. So, yes, yeah, so I think that's what they have. And it's why they're so humble and obedient. When you look at the sources prior to their reigns for Catherine and Elizabeth, you will always find that they are very humble, very obedient, almost trying not not to be there. You know, like try, to be there without being there, to, to be like... A, just part of the core, but there, and actually there's a chapter that's, I think chapter three, uh, or chapter two, I can't remember now, but in the shadow of their courts, right? It's, it's, they are in the shadow of their courts. They're not playing a huge part. Well, they're playing their parts, but what we expect from them, and that's it. And then they obviously rose to power. Fantastic stories. Absolutely. So when you were writing this book, were there one or two things you discovered that blew your mind about these powerful women? Yes, a few things. Um, I, I, I remember like uh, reading the dispatches from from ambassadors, and the way that they would describe one or the other, and um, was absolutely fantastic. I think that I, I like when ambassadors are giving you enough materials as a historian for you to recreate a scene. Was I'm saying that carefully. In my book, there's an author's note where I explain that I've recreated scenes. It's it's a narrative history. It's it, it reads like fiction, but it's not. It's all based on primary evidence and manuscripts. 
And what I love is like with these ambassadors is recreating, you know, a dinner party at Catherine's castle, for example. Uh, I, I had lots of fun with the way she shut down the demands of the English ambassador Frogmorton and the way she did it and the way he he had to report it to Elizabeth. And you can, in the letter, you can see and you can feel the frustration. And I enjoyed that very much. I think I was also surprised at the respect they had for each other. Another thing that I, I was really surprised about, it, and it's a bit sad, I was really sad actually when I finished writing my book um, because I end my book with Catherine's death and then you have an epilogue. And obviously when Catherine dies, Elizabeth and Catherine hadn't really spoke to or exchanged letters for a long time. They I think it's, it says when, when Catherine sent her last letter and it's, and it's a bit snarky because Catherine is, it was really hurt in 1587 with Mary Stuart's um, execution. She really thinks that Elizabeth went too far. And then she's really upset when actually uh, she, she won against the Spanish Armada because she thinks that then she feels so entitled. And, just, and there's almost this imbalance now between the two queens where Elizabeth is really a massive political player and Catherine is not just a political advisor in a privy councillor, you know, to Henry III, and her power and her influence diminished greatly, you know, d- during those years. So I think that, um, that, that was interesting. But what really was striking for me was Elizabeth's letter to Henry III when his mother died. What is weird about this letter is that she cross lots of things in the letters but you can still read what she was saying about Catherine and she's so respectful and she really recognized Catherine's political greatness there's no other words um to say that but then she crossed it (laughs) and it's almost like it shows that she wanted to say it she wanted to acknowledge it to Henry III at the same time she couldn't help it thinking boy she's been a, a pain you know in, in the ass for like the last two years or something or more three years and I have to recognize that she she was actually a good you know she she was very influential now, I think it's a funny funny letter and also it shows Elizabeth um, respect for, for Catherine and I yeah I thought it was a very interesting letter I think when you do research you're always bound to be surprised by something you didn't expect I was very surprised by um, a French ambassador, glory, the use of his glorious terms when it comes to Elizabeth. And, and I wrote on that um, a lot in my academic book, but also in an in a, in a academic chapter about him and, and Elizabeth. And I wrote again about him in Blood, Fire and Gold because there really is something incredible about the closeness he managed to achieve with Elizabeth where she would trust him to tell him at a so it was the very big event in London uh, I think it's 1561 it was the Royal Exchange the launch kind of thing of the Royal Exchange of the exhibition and uh, she invited him to stay with her um, and uh, and in the end she said like I'm going to paraphrase because I don't have it with me right now but like she's basically saying that she really wanted a man to who would love her as a woman and not as a queen. And he replies to her that he has no doubt that it will happen. You know, and, I, and 
And in that moment, you have to imagine that, yeah, maybe he's just trying to be polite because, you know, he's been invited for a free dinner or whatever. But at the same time, you can also imagine that maybe did he have a crush or something? <laughs> you know, I just don't know, like, who would say, oh, yeah, I have no doubt it will happen. He could just have been polite and say, oh, you know, your majesty, you, you will make, you know, I'm sure you will find the right man or something. I don't know. Like, I just felt like he was very keen on on the way he was trying to reassure her. And I thought it was very interesting. That is very personal. And it is an intriguing answer. It is. It really is. I thought, I thought he's very... Um, but for, for many reasons, he, he just seemed very, very keen um, to spend time with her. And she seemed to notice when he didn't spend enough time with her because at some point he, he didn't see her because he was quite unwell. And she said, oh... You haven't come and seen me at court for for long for long time, and you apologized, and and I just thought that was, I I, I think a friendship was born, and it's funny because he's a French ambassador with with a big French Catholic agenda, yet he still didn't manage to convince her on how to treat Mary Stuart, right? But <laughs> or on the marriage negotiation for France. But I think it's still uh-huh. very interesting uh, the, the way he. His experience at the, at the English court is, is fascinating and completely different from the other ambassadors who went there as well. Like so, Because then there are people who are working for the Guises, so Mary Street's family, and um, and then you have a very, very different dynamic. Like you have a very, Actually, yes, there's another, like, I don't want to spoil all my book, but yes, there are, there are very things that I found that was um, almost hilarious. <laughs> How Elizabeth is going to handle um, the Babington plot, but then the, what we—I do, don't know how many people are aware of this because obviously you're all huge fans. <laughs> people who are listening to your podcast are massive, massive fans and massive experts in, in their own rights. But there's actually um, what's going to really trigger Elizabeth is in January uh, 1587. There's a discussion that is almost like a, another plot because of the French ambassador uh, Guillaume de Lopépine. And a secretary, the trap, who's they both work, um, and they both like Gizar, so it means like they're part of the Guise faction in France. And uh, Elizabeth is gonna then forgive de Lobépine, the French ambassador, and she's gonna say, oh, and when she sends, when she greets him back at court after the death of Mary, Queen of Scots, she she basically telling him, she introduces him to to Walsingham to, oh, this is the man who tried to kill me. <laughs> Just thought. Bloody hell, who says that? Oh my goodness. <laughs> you know, I, just, I, just, I just thought it was it was hilarious. And then she basically told him, like, if you manage to make uh, people in France forgive me for what happened to Mary Stuart, um, I will forgive you for what you tried to do in January. Basically, you know, I'm paraphrasing here, but it's basically what she's saying. Because And he's like, oh, he's, he, he's still in denial. I've not, I haven't done anything. I can assure you. <laughs> he did. <laughs> It's like you say, being a historian is a lot like being a detective, isn't it? It completely is. You have to to get all the pieces of puzzle. But I think also that's why we love history so much. There are still more sources out there. And they, you know, and maybe that's something that's going to be completely like disprove everything, disprove with everything I've done, disagree with everything I've done because other sources are going to come up. And there are other sources out there, you know, like that's why we need more and more historians. I think it's, it's, uh, I think it's why it's so fascinating. I think it's why people are so drawn to history and the tutors. Absolutely. And 
I appreciate your time so much today. Again, your book is called Blood, Fire, and Gold, and we really look forward to it. Is there anything else you'd like to add about it? Well, it's um, it's really a book about two incredible women. I really hope I did justice to them, to their story, individual and the relationship. And I truly, truly hope that you will love it because I really put my heart and soul and try by recreating those scenes. Really, I, I hope you will travel back in time That's, I, like I did when I was writing. I really hope that it's what's going to happen to the readers and that you will forgive me for trying like sometimes to use like a language, you know, that's a bit more modern. But I explain everything in my author's notes. So please read my author's notes and, and, <laughs> and understand what I've been trying to do. I'm trying to bring them back to life for all of us. Well, thank you very, very much for your time today. And please come back to All Things Tudor anytime you want. I will. Thank you so much for having me. It was so much fun. <laughs> uh, it was fun. Thank you. You've been listening to All Things Tudor. My thanks go to listeners, my husband, and my team. If you like what you hear, leave a review, follow wherever you get your podcast, and share with your friends to help others find the show. Join the All Things Tudor Facebook community to connect with tens of thousands of Tudor history lovers. You can also connect with me across social media at the Deb ATL. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch y'all later.